Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time. We do so by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. I'm joined today by the wonderful film critic Kristen Lopez. You can find her views on film via the numerous podcasts that she's on, or you can read the various articles for the various sites that she writes for, including The Hollywood Reporter and RogerEbert.com, to name a few. Kristen, how are you doing today? I am good. I would also advocate for reading my stuff on The Daily Beast, but send me nice comments only. <laughs> yes, yes, you had an article that went up recently, or I guess the last week, depending on when this call actually drops, but go check out her work there as well. It's been stirring up a lot of a lot of talk. People are very angry. <laughs> Although they shouldn't be. No, it's about Ant-Man. Exactly. That's just the way the internet is nowadays. My regular co-host, Andrew Hathaway, is on hiatus for the year, but you can still find his work on can'tstopthemovies.com. And uh, before we start, I'm going to do a quick plug. just want to give a quick shout-out to the folks at leonardmalton.com and their new voices column they have every Tuesday. They're trying to change the conversation on diversity in regards to film criticism by highlighting various voices from around the globe. Um, every Tuesday on their site. And yours truly actually got selected for a piece that's going up on July 13th, which based on the calendar when this actually drops will probably be about two two or three days before this episode drops. So yeah, it was a bit of a shock to me, but I want to give a big thank you to Leonard Malton and his daughter, Jesse Malton, for... They are the best people. You know, they really are. And they, they read my piece. They uh, Jesse sent me a really nice email about it. And she's like, can you slim it down? And I was thinking, the version I submitted was already really slimmed down compared to my first draft. I was just happy that they even considered it because I'm, I'm sure they're getting flooded with stuff. But So yeah, it'll be up there. It was on Luke Cage. It was just something that had been floating around in my mind for a few days. And then I saw they put out the call for submissions. So thank you to those folks. Uh, we like to start off each episode by highlighting one short film that you can watch online for free. Our short film today is Halle, directed by Minhao Baj, and apologies if I mispronounced um, the last name. The film is a 2016 short that follows a 16-year-old Muslim teenager as she attempts to navigate her sexuality and identity while growing up in a conservative household. Kristen, what did you think of this short? Um, I enjoyed this a lot. I saw this as a grown-up version of Wajda, if that makes sense, in terms of the fact that they're both about these very staunch religious backgrounds commonly identified with the Middle East and navigating the changing ways that gender and sexuality play out. Obviously, in Wajda, it was a little girl. Here, it is a teenager. And I, I thought this was really, really well done. The young girl at the center of it, there's not a lot of audio from her dialogue. What what she does say is very soft-spoken, but she conveys so much with her face, and her acting is just is just amazing. And I know often that I, I tend to say on some of these shorts that I wanted more characterization. I actually wanted a longer movie because I thought there was just so many interesting things that I wanted to know more about, specifically about where the, the short ends on kind of this precipice, this unanswered question, and I wanted more. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know what, what happens. How does she come back and deal with what has happened to her? Well, you know what? You are in luck because I can say based on IMDb, you are going to get more because there is a longer version that I guess has just been completed. From my brief research, it sounds like this film or at least the original script was one of the f- scripts that was selected for the blacklist back oh, in okay. 2016. So I, I guess she had turned it into a short and then was working on maybe the the feature length i don't know maybe getting that funded or whatnot but she's she did another short that i had i watched after this called pretext and it was also really good about a woman who was confronting her sexual assailant and how she was 
dealing with the assault, you know, just kind of coping with that afterwards. And apparently her debut film is a film called One Night with Anna Camp, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm going to definitely check that one out. I really liked Halle. And it's funny because when you said it reminded you of Wadja, for me, it reminded me of a film that I saw at TIFF last year called What Will People Say? But gentler version of that, because in that film, it's about a Pakistani-American teenager who basically gets caught fooling around with a boy that she likes and her parents who are very religious go to big extremes like the father essentially kidnaps her and takes her to Pakistan and it's it's just a, a much darker film but it was just a an interesting take on female sexuality coming of age especially in a religious family whereas this one fits more to the growing up experience like regardless of whether or not you're Muslim or whatever faith like we you know anyone can identify with what she's going through and coming to terms with one's sexuality that potential first love first sexual experience and then also having parents that are conservative in their own right whether it be religious or what have you and I, I don't know this film I just really love this film the look of it the shots of her skateboarding and at the beginning how she's confident but somewhat timid and then when she's going to the concert she's she's really free uh, I, I think this this film works on several levels and like you I'm really excited to to see what the the future length is going to be yeah this has I'm, I'm a big fan of movies that promote feminine sexuality accurately because I think a lot of movies are very afraid of depicting female sexuality in a way that's authentic in a way that's not condemning in some way um, because god forbid we promote a movie that shows women having sex because they might go out and have it and it's going to be really bad so here there's a there i mean it's all it, it's pretty much all about sex on the fringes of it um you know based on how the movie opens and closes and i i think what's really great is that this is a very universal experience told in a very specific way so Halle, she meets the boy, they have this really cute interaction with each other, and they eventually decide to have sex, and it's really fascinating how the, where the camera is and how the framing is, and that it's presumably beneficial experience for her. Again, female conceptions of pleasure in movies are, are very rare to see, and yet at the end, based on how you interpret the ending, it's a very relatable concept of feeling like you've made a mistake, yet it, it takes on this whole added dimension, considering considering her background and her religion and her mom's warning that God is watching. But it also kind of unifies this concept of the value that we place on virginity and this kind of buyer's remorse that women are often compelled to feel the, the concept that they've lost something and how that plays out. So I, I really enjoyed how that plays as kind of a concurrent parallel storyline. See, that's interesting because I wasn't sure if it was buyer's remorse at the end or if it was more being upset with her parents seemingly crumbling marriage because yeah, we yeah. get that the mother is just one of the of the pair and it sounds like the husband may be stepping out because he's there, there are implications there's, yeah there's yeah. implication that he's going on this business trip with an, Amir and his I think assistant Bridget and then the conversation quickly turns to Bridget like oh that woman again and when he's on away on trip it sounds like he He's, he's supposed to come back one day, but we get the sense that he may not be coming back the day that he's supposed to. He might have to extend his stay with Bridget a bit longer. So I felt that towards the end, she was more upset with parents and what was going on with them. Because
because when she gets home um, after she basically missed curfew and the parents, the father's yelling at her for, for coming home late, the argument quickly devolves into the parents arguing with each other. And even the father's like, wait a minute, no, no, we're supposed to be yelling at her. Why are you, why are you yelling at me? And, you know, the mother's storming off. So that's what she was reflecting on because the experience with Jesse, who, can I just say, is like the typical bad boy that you always see, but he's like the good bad boy because, you know, he's the skateboarder, um, he's plays in a rock band, but then he's also sweet and gentle and it's just like ah oh, they always one of those jessies like you know it took me back to high school when i would think of a, of a few of the jessies kind of shake my fist like ah damn you jesse <laughs> well and by, by that same token i think what makes him he's he's kind of the forbidden fruit on a variety of levels too in the fact that he's a, a white american male you know her parents are, are very devout in the sense that they are practicing and holly does wear the the traditional headdress even though she does wear regular clothes so the implication is that this relationship is not going to be positive if she were to bring him home but at the same time the way it's framed the way he is presented, I totally relate to that, to that, that whole, like, being just awestruck by a guy, especially one that is paying attention to you, when that is something that you were not expecting. I do think it's interesting that there's various ways to read the ending, and to go off of what you were saying, you could also go with the concept of her questioning whether it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that her mother has said that God is watching and she goes off and has sex and they're having this this horrible argument the concept of like a she can't share this experience that was seemingly positive with her mother and also it's almost opening this door these floodgates is it a curse essentially that she has brought upon her family I mean so there's there's a lot of differing ways to interpret it but the the overall thing is that she's had this really positive sexual experience and yet she has seemingly no one to tell. Yeah, there there is a, a sense of isolation through most of this film. Even when she's out skateboarding, doing something that she yeah. loves, she's still by herself. We we don't see her associating with anyone else, actually. Well, and it's evident that she's hiding that from her parents, too. Yes. You know, her mom says, are you studying? And she's at the skate park. So it's seemingly that she has no... The personal life that she has created for herself is one that needs to be secret. Mm -hmm. And, th and that's what I also found interesting because I went through a, a bit of a, a rabbit hole with films about teenage girls and what they're going through today. Finally caught up with Edge of Seventeen. Oh, let's go on. Yeah, which I which I really liked, and then the film that we're going to be talking about, and there was an another one that I had watched. I would recommend the To Do List if anybody has not seen that with Aubrey Plaza. No, I have not. I thought that was more of a screwball comedy based on the trailers. Um, it's a it's a harkening back to '80s sex comedies if women were actually like people in them. Oh, okay. But it is a, a very pro-female sexuality film, directed and written by women, I believe. Definitely directed by women. I don't know if a, a male wrote it, but either way, yeah, it's it's very, very mm -hmm. good. But I'm definitely, I'm writing that down. I have to check that one out. Uh, the one thing I, I will say that I did like about Hai is just the fact that it was a, a Muslim character in the lead. She was still just a regular American girl. One of the things I noticed, and I was just trying to go off the top of my head, and I was thinking of the list of, you know, really popular 
popular films about teenage girls and 90% of the ones that I came up with off the top of my head were all about young white females, which is fine. But when you're talking about the universal impact of stories, sometimes it's just nice to see someone else. Representation matters. You know, we're a show about diversity in cinema, so it's just one of those things that I have to bring. Because I, I literally off the top of my head, I think came up with about five that had women of color in the lead that were teenagers. And then I just went, like, I came up with, I think, at least 15 just off the top of my head that were, was young white women and they all had either similar stories or variations and the ones that I came up with, the people of color, there was always like either an element of crime, if you think of girlhood or teen pregnancy, I'm just another girl on the IRT. Like I would love to see more films with diverse cast telling these universal tales of youth. Yeah, you definitely need more. And, and we'll t- we can talk about this more when we talk about Sofia Coppola, because as much as I adore her, I will be the first to tell you that her films are very white. That was going to be something I wanted to talk about as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and no, we, we definitely need, I am a big proponent. It's what gets me in trouble on Twitter uh, about saying that we need representation in all aspects. You bring up how we need more kind of coming of age films involving women of color. I maintain that I would love a coming of age film with a disabled woman, with disabled woman of yeah, color. Good point, um, good point. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think sexuality narratives are one of those, especially when it comes to women. There are so many different experiences and Hollywood has been so stagnant about wanting to showcase it. Again, I think, I think females having sex on screen is still very hot button. It's, it's why I, I maintain we don't get female spring break movies. We get a crap ton of movies about like men going on spring break. We do not get them about women because I, I don't think Hollywood wants, or especially the men, don't want to confront the concept of like women being wanton. I still think like they assume in movies that like women who have casual sex or quote unquote slatterns um, or trollops, whatever word you want to use from the 1800s. So so yeah, I, I definitely think we need more diverse voices. And as we've seen with stuff like this with stuff like Wajda there's a relatability if you're if it's a good universal story you can tell it in a way that's relatable to an audience that does not conform to that group by skin color sexuality but you can tell a, a basic story that appeals to everybody even though it t- is aimed at a very specific group we'll talk about this again I'm sure when we talk next time about call me by your name oh, there's so many ways we can go with this how about we uh, close this off and then we take a quick break and jump into our feature film of the day perfect Our main film for today is The Virgin Suicides, directed by Sofia Coppola. The 1999 film follows a group of male friends in the mid-70s who become obsessed with five mysterious sisters who are sheltered by their strict parents. Now, Chris, before we start, I know we're going to definitely dive into this film. I have to admit that when I saw this as one of the films that you suggested possibly talking about, I was eager to revisit it because it's been a while, but I also was a little hesitant because in our first season of this show, one of the two major arguments that Andrew and I have ever had on this show. One of them was about Sofia Coppola and the bling ring. Because oh, I had watched I'm... somewhere before which I didn't like. I, I maintain that Sofia Coppola, when she writes and directs original films, films based off her experiences, they are not that good. I am one of the few people that does not like Lost in Translation. I like Somewhere more than I like Lost in Translation. Really? I feel, I feel Sofia needs source material. I think her strongest films are ones where she has a book or a, a topic that she has to conform with. That's interesting because I like Lost in Translation. Definitely like it more than Somewhere. And Bling Ring, I mean, I guess it's, well, it's... I- 
adapted from what an article, but I I will I will stand for the bling ring. I enjoyed the hell out of that movie. I've asked her about the bling ring. She said that that was a movie that she it took a lot out of her to make that one. Okay, okay, and I and I'm not going to dredge up old arguments or debates, but I'll say my issue my main issue with the bling ring is that for me that whole story and the way how that group of teens come together and do what they do it is the the Asian character who is the lead of that group. Right. She's the one that does the most time and everything, but yet the film pretty much treats her like a secondary character. Right, and and the movie whitewashes significantly, considering that I think almost all of the characters were either Asian or Mexican. Mm-hmm. So, so the movie really whitewashes. At the same time, I I love what it says about celebrity culture. And, and again, if you're a big fan of the way Sofia Coppola fetishizes fashion and, and clothes and items and all of that, it's it's great fun. It's not her best film. I mean, I I think this this is my favorite. I think if we're talking the most technically proficient movie she's made, it's Marie Antoinette. But, but yeah, so many of her films are interesting to kind of deconstruct on different levels. Yeah. That's true, and I, I'm probably a bit of a hypocrite because I actually like The Beguiled, even though I had issues with them essentially whitewashing some of the characters in that as well. So I think I just have problems with her that I need to work out myself. But I do really like this film. I've, I've had I had people ask me when I when I sat down with her, I kind of take, took her to the woodshed for not having people of color in her films, and of course I did not because I was having a lunch with her and I did not want her to get pissed while we we're eating a meal together, but. But I did bring up how she dealt with criticisms about her movies being white and specifically The Beguiled. And she had mentioned something that I thought was very interesting where she said she's damned if she does and she's damned if she doesn't. Where if she put a person of color in her movies and she failed to capture them in a way that made other people happy, she would still get in trouble for it. That That's not, you know, negating her issues. But she, she does bring up some interesting criticisms about, like, how could she do... How could she, is it just as simple as casting an African-American actor or something to play this role? Or are there higher expectations placed on her because of how she's avoided the issue? And to, again, even with that answer, I find it's, I can see the double-edged sword on her part, but I almost have more respect if she at least attempts. Because I think for The Beguiled, it was what, Kirsten Dunst's character? And if I remember the story correctly... In the, in the original 71 Don Siegel film, which The Beguiled is a remake of, there is a sla- a freed slave character. Yeah, but in the book, isn't there like two characters that, and then they even have chapters that are, um, that they narrate? I've not read so, I'm not sure. She, when, when we talked about it, she had talked about just removing the slave character from, from the mm. movie. I think of a film like Detroit, the Catherine Bigelow film, which right. I also had issues with, but I... Came out around the same time as The Beguiled. Actually, yeah, that's right. It did. It did. And But I still respected her for attempting it. Like, I could see what she was trying to do with it. I don't think she was completely successful, but I still respected that she attempted to make this story that pretty much no studio wanted to touch. Right. You can take that risk. You can have a film with a slave in it that doesn't have to be character. Right, right. 
But that's getting off the point. Let's go back to The Virgin Suicide that I, I know you're a fan of. And I, watching it again, I, I remembered how much I actually really enjoyed this film. I think this might be my second favorite of hers. So do you want to start us off on some of your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I am a huge fan of this movie. I've seen it several, several times. It's actually really surprising that this came out. Sofia Coppola was 28 when she made her directorial debut, which makes me feel incredibly lazy as a human being, <laughs> that she was able to make this fantastic movie as a 28 year old but i saw this probably when it came out to dvd so probably about 2001 because dvd releases especially of limited films tended to be small and i don't remember what compelled me to watch this movie if, if i caught a trailer or something i always was a bit more advanced with movie choices than my peers but i remember seeing this at about 12 or 13 and just being captivated by it i don't I doubt that I understood it, but I was just so intrigued by the aesthetics and the way that this movie captures the, the coming of age of being a teenage girl. And I, I often make fun of movies that written by adults about teens because I feel they try too hard to capture the language or the feelings. And it just kind of feels like that Steve Buscemi meme where he's like, hello, fellow kids. It, it feels very fake. And, and that you don't feel that here. As a 13-year-old white girl growing up in the suburbs, I understood what this movie was saying i know that that is pro as an adult i'm like i understand that's an aesthetic that is very limiting to a lot of other audiences but for me this movie just spoke to me and i ended up reading the book and i've, I've seen this so many times now i can practically recite it but i love so many things about it the little nuances the performances of the cast kirsten dunst is so fantastic in this movie i this is a movie i i would frame every frame just because i think it's so beautifully put together so yeah i i love this movie but i do understand that it is highly highly flawed and isolating yeah it's one that i enjoy as well it's one of those films that i put in the category that you know i love watching it but i don't feel personally connected to right. that world or the characters within it like even growing up in a, a family that's fairly religious they were never that strict the father um, played by James Woods. He's such a oddball character that uh, majority of the time he's off in his own little world. Like he, he's great when he's talking about the war times and the little miniature figurines or he's chatting with plants, but he, he's really disconnected from, from everything. And you get the sense that Kathleen Turner, who should really be in everything, because I, I love Kathleen Turner, she's the one that's kind of controlling that household. And even there, those dynamics still seem very cinematic and foreign, but it's so enthralling to watch. And then how the, the sisters interact with each other and it's funny this time around i guess the first time that i had watched it i didn't really get how strange it is that these five i think it was five of the boys five of them were obsessing over this over these women so much like there's a point in this film where they have different artifacts and i guess they found photos of them and then they started putting themselves in the photos and creating that sense of well you know we created this world with them and we traveled with them and it felt very eerie this time and i guess the the, the first time i'm watching it, it didn't really sink into how strange it would be yeah so so a couple things the the in, i think there's this is a movie that you can really play opposite the beguile you know sophia coppola's first film and her last film um because i think there's a lot of commonalities and so many of her relationships are absent or disinterested fathers now sophia claims she does not write about her life but i don't believe that <laughs> i believe that all of her films are autobiographical in some way and and so she always has these movies where it's a very domineering mother in some form 
and or an absent father, um, or at least one that's just not interested. I think James Wood's character is a bit more active in a, in a modern way, unlike someone like Stephen Dorff's character in Somewhere, who is this otherworldly presence. So, so there's that. I think that's something that she enjoys playing with because her own family dynamics as a child were so weird. And then you have the the boys themselves. So much of this movie, I think, is about appropriation, but it's it's male appropriation of women, and that's again something that she really enjoys kind of deconstructing this concept of like male ownership over women. And and here you have these four boys who are all preteens who are so obsessed. You know, they mention that that they spend more time arguing over these things than spending time with their wives. It's this concept that they deify these girls. They elevate them as these kind of mystical goddesses of what they they believe ultimate femininity is. You know, what they believe is the picture-perfect definition of women is, the, is these girls across the street. So when they're trying to insert themselves in their lives, it's hilarious, especially as a, a female, you know, because they barely interact with these girls. They have one party, and that's it, and it's this concept of, like, well, we must know these, I think they call them, uh, Giovanni Rabisi is the narrator, he, he calls them, like, these magnificent creatures, and it's this idea that they are special, they are otherworldly, and so at the end, when they're talking about, you know, putting the pieces together, and they never understand what has gone on, it's this concept that men see women as this grand mystery, you know, that they see them as this thing that cannot be figured out, this unanswerable question. And as the movie shows you their real life behind the facade, it's not like that at all. And so there's this kind of ironic bit of comedy that goes on, watching these boys stand outside their house with a lighter in the air, and you're just kind of like, dude, you're really missing, you can't, you didn't read the room, did you? <laughs> yeah, they completely, and it's funny because when you said that they barely speak to them, I've written down in my notes that actually speak to them maybe three times in this entire film because there's the party there's when they go into the house towards the end so they they talk to Christian Dunst and then there's the whole signaling phone call back and forth and uh, even then it's mostly through like records that they... right and, and, and exactly music is and again it's another Coppola trait music being this kind of unifying way of communication but yeah you, you, the party scene I think is really where things are defined because the boys act completely unable to talk to these girls I think one of them asks her where she's going to college and then he says you know, do you know what uh, have you heard of Yale she says yeah and she just starts laughing it's this concept of like they can't even bother to form declarative sentences or they think that they don't know things that they're stupid and so you're, you're kind of making fun of them I, I think for me it all culminates there's a, a scene where they talk about stealing the one sister who dies who, who commits suicide early in the film Cecilia they steal her diary and the one guy is quote unquote deconstructing it when he's talking about oh you see the eyes they're all over the place she's a dreamer when she jumped out of that window she probably thought she'd fly like no she's writing about having frozen pizza and like going to watch whales there's no grand mystery here you're creating one one of the things i found funny is they're obsessing over these girls as you say they're deifying them and a good portion of the film is them interviewing trip yeah. many years later interviewing men that have or young boys that had had supposedly had sex with the one sister Lux played by 
characters can die. Mm-hmm. And even when they're spying on Lux with the various boys, men, what have you, on the roof, they're giving play-by-plays as if, you know, she's in this moment of satisfaction, but you can see on her face that she's using these men as a, as a crux for something else. Like, if they really understood her, they would see the pain that she's going through. The fact that they're grown adults and they still have to, you know, pull up Trip, who's like the embodiment of what they wish they could be, even though his life has turned into crap. And you're just like, wow, this is, it is amazing how off the mark they are. And then it, it almost makes sense that towards the end, they're kind of scowling at the, the upper middle class society who don't understand teens and kind of mock that the issues that they go through aren't real. Like, you know, they don't really talk to the children or, or know them well. It's like, but you guys don't talk to the girls that you're obsessing over. You're essentially the same people that you, quote unquote, despise. Right. And there's this whole concept of feeling like, I think Coppola's big conceit is, is that men feel that women are these porcelain objects. And the reason that they feel such a need to tightly control what they do, what they say, what they think is because of this, this deification. Uh, and a lot of this is, is in the, the original novel, which is written by Jeffrey Eugenide. So, so a lot, this is I think, based on when I read the book, it's a fairly literal translation in terms of even dialogue lifted directly from the book into the movie. So this is Coppola and the author really thinking this. But you brought up the, the Trip Fontaine character, the Josh Hartnett character, which I, I, I've mentioned this to, to Sophia when we talked and I brought up the fact that she has a real knack for taking actors that have this persona and kind of sending it up or leaning into it or commenting on it. So like Colin Farrell in The Beguiled being this this lady killer. Oh in the yes, press. that's right. Right. And she she claimed she had not thought of that. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, who didn't think of that? But the same thing applies here with, with Josh Hartnett, who had become kind of the de facto heartthrob of, of the late 90s for young girls. And here as Trip, he's, yeah, the ultimate like guy who's always got a line. He's always got charm. But he's the guy that peaks in high school. And and when we're introduced to him, he's like in rehab. And, you know, the concept is that they, the boys believe that the only guy who really knew Luck knew in the sense of what? And you're sitting there thinking he only knew her biblically. Like that's, that's what they, they think as, as knowing somebody is to have sex with them. That, and they assume that they're getting all this great information from him. Yet again, watching his definition of the relationship that culminates with them having sex on this football field. And then he says, you know, I just, I had to leave. I had to be away. The movie really doesn't give you judgment. It doesn't condemn you. It just plays it out. And I think there's enough there for the audience to say, like, this guy's kind of a dick. His, I had to leave, because it was almost like, at that point, it couldn't get, yeah, it, it couldn't get any better than that, and I could never be what she would need me to be. And it's like, really? You, you After one night, it's like, okay, you achieved your goal, and it was the most beautiful thing ever, that you did not want to crush that moment, so you just left her on the field. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Again, so much of his concept is is based on this idea of saying she is the best thing in the world. He says he called her the still point of the turning world. And it's a, a girl that through his gaze, there's a really interesting camera shot where he, we're, we're supposed to be looking through his eyes at her and there's a twinkle in her eye. It's this concept of, again, he's appropriated and kind of put this burden on her shoulders of being this perfect woman. But when they finally do have sex, she's ruined. You know, she's not special. She's every other conquest that he's ever made. And there's nothing there for him anymore. But 
even though, and I think when he says, you know, that was love, that was true, that was real. I don't believe it. I think it's bullshit <laughs> because I think that he he wants to say that. He wants to feel that, but I don't think the character does or doesn't know what those words mean. I think it's he didn't know what it meant because as we see when they introduce him um, rather comically, women of all ages just throw themselves at him. He doesn't have to worry about studying for a test because there'll be a girl there that will find a way to give him the answers while taking the test there was some a woman will bring his book report and some brownies lux was the only one that seemed to offer up a challenge and it kind of threw him for a loop oh that means she must be special and unique and then going through hoops to try and win her affection and like you you get that weird sense that maybe trip is falling off it's like no he doesn't understand what love actually is there's no partnership so he this moment to him is the most magical thing and all these guys idolize him because he's had this magical moment and you know his life went down pretty much after that this is the guy that the five of you are are praising as a king you know it's ridiculous you can read it the exact opposite way which is to go kind of the original sin argument which is that they've cursed him because i think after the the lisbon sisters die spoiler alert the title is real after they die they mention um that the the town had um what is it a mold problem or something it turned everything green there was this gas that kind of permeates over the whole town and they're having like gas mask parties and everything so it's this concept of like these women have tainted the the world you know or at least this area by by reminding people of like how horrible appropriate you know deifying women is yeah but there's also an interesting thing when uh, the first sister dies and i think it was the priest that comes in and says i proclaimed it an accident even though she had attempted suicide earlier in the tub and the way how the town gossips about the family and the sisters and it quickly becomes oh like you know poor them what a terrible accident like the way how the adults quickly change the narrative to to ignore what's really going on and the the guy at the pool in, uh, towards the end there's one part where he drunkenly falls into the pool and he's like oh woe is me I am a teenager you know and they all kind of laugh it's, it's it's eerie how quickly they change the narrative to keep the quote unquote normal safe suburban life that they're all accustomed to right there's a, a moment I think this movie is aged very well in the era of you know all these articles that pop out do millennials have it too easy you know the quote unquote whiner culture that certain generations have have taken to put on the young. And in 1974, you're dealing with this time in the midst of the Vietnam War, post-civil rights movement, where you're seeing the rise of the hippie. And all of this would culminate with the Manson murders in 69, kind of the death of the flower child. But this, this idea that teens had had it very easy because this was a time of relative prosperity and that they didn't have a lot of problems. And the movie does play that up because there's a lot of comical, the way the media narrative is shaped in this movie, showing kids who, um, when they're asked about the girls, they don't have a lot of insights into them because they didn't know them. Or when they're talking about teen suicide, they play they play the girl who tried to bake a cake filled with rat poison and her nana ate it. And uh, stuff like that that's supposed to be like, look at how stupid these kids are. And so when, when Cecilia is the first to try to kill herself, the priest changes it so that she can have a, a Catholic burial and presumably be buried in the cemetery. But at the 
same time, you get these these shots of like people gossiping and, and one of the kids' moms, again, because it's all about aesthetic. You know, I think Sofia Coppola is a really great person of saying like, we love aesthetics, we love how things look, but we need to look beyond that. I think one of the moms says, those girls are going to be fine. The other one was just going to grow up to be a coop. And so you're you're sitting there thinking again, you know, what makes Cecilia a coop? You know, it goes back to the whole concept of the pamphlet that they give to the parents about how to tell if your kid's suicidal or they're right. Yeah. Um, you know, what what makes what does a normal teenager look like? They have no real answer. I, I forgot about that pamphlet scene because they they really don't address much in this film like they brush everything aside because as you said they don't know what a normal teenager is and they look for quick fix solutions and i think you you made a very good point in saying that how this film holds up very well because even nowadays with all the technology and stuff a lot of the articles especially if you look at like parenting sites and whatnot now it's talking more about social media and and online bullying but a lot of the stuff is still the same like there's there's a lot of disconnect between the article and news stories that parents are being fed and what their children are actually going through um especially when it comes to to sex and i want to know what did you think of the the way how sensuality is portrayed from a female perspective in in this film i i enjoy it a lot i think we'll we'll talk about this too again when we talk about call me by your name i am a classic movie girl so i'm not i mean i'm not saying that i'm not opposed to a sex scene in a movie but I think that we really lose sight of how certain things from the classic movie era regarding romance can be really sexual and really hot and so yeah when you're watching this you know the movie um, does something interesting where it's showing the male gaze through the female gaze which is Coppola directing and Coppola's directing is on the audience watching something through a male's eyes but it's sexualizing something completely innocuous Case in point, Lux's feet. You know, the, the camera will just look at her feet on the table. And that's, you know, what he's he's turned on by. Whereas her mother is, you know, telling her, put on her sweater, uh, which is a scene that they mimic in The Beguiled. Because, you know, bare shoulders are are something taboo. There's a point in the movie where the, the one kid that they invite over for dinner, the boy goes into their bathroom and starts sniffing the lipstick. Yeah, that's right. Um, he's he's yeah, really he's, obsessed with trying to just get a glimpse of anything that he can. The boy Boys want something that has been near them. They don't necessarily want to be near them, but they want something, this buffer. And I think that's why they go to people like Trip or people that have been with luck. It's that concept of legitimacy, but not actually going that far. So it's it's the buffer, if that makes sense. Because even in that scene when he's in the bathroom smelling the lipstick, uh, I believe it's Lux that comes in. Yeah. And he's immediately tongue-tied, doesn't know what to do. He's kind of staring at her and she's like, can I get some privacy? You know, and you can see she's She's laughing at him because she knows how easily these boys can be, I guess, whipped up into a frenzy just yeah. by the simplest touch or look or a simple word. The thing is that the girls are definitely thirsty. I mean, they, when the guy comes over, the, the girls are all rubbing their feet on his under the table. Lux is talking about, you know, uh, that they mentioned that she um, writes the names of guys she's interested in in her underwear. They're definitely interested in sex, yet nobody is actually trying to have sex with them. And I think also part of that has to do with being so sheltered because yeah. the, as you said, the foot scene is a great scene, partly because just how how it's the, the flirtation between the two. Like, she knows that Trip is looking at her feet. And the feet are probably the most innocent thing she could do. But the mother is also aware of what's going on as well, whereas the father is completely clueless to 
Oz. Like, he doesn't see the shoulder stuff. He doesn't see the feet. So, yeah, they there is a lot of that. And when Lux actually does have sex with people, it's not romanticized or anything. Like, it seems like she has more fun with the flirtation, and then the actual sex is, is the disappointment. Right. And I think, too, you know, the you bring up the isolation factor. I love there's a scene in this movie where they're about to go to the, I guess it's the homecoming dance, and they're all in the car together, and they're talking about the neighbors. You know, talking about who's having an affair, who's, you know, doing this. Um, it's a very it's a moment where you understand it's very freeing, that they're able to be uncensored, that they're able to be um, who they are in a way that they can't, um, whether at home or at school, when they feel they're under observation. Um, and, and it's a sharp contrast to when they are eventually completely cut off from the world. And the movie is almost completely silent from their perspective yeah and it's i found that whole prom sequence of events really interesting because when trip convinces the father to at least speak to the mom and try and get um lux to come out and i guess he strikes this deal that he's going to get some he and some of the guys from the football team are going to take it out at that point he doesn't know which guys are going to be there he just cares about getting Lux to go to um, the dance with him. And which Therese even comments on, they're going to just auction us yes, off. Yes, exactly, which is one of my one of my favorite lines. And in many ways, that's kind of what happens. You know, they all start vying. They're like, you know, well, you owe me because I did this. Come on, Trip. We've been buddies for years. And I think it ends up being one guy had a car. One guy was doing really well with academics, so they thought that would impress the, the folks. And I forget what the other guy, um, his what he was... I think he had weed. <laughs> yes, that's it. He had really good weed. So that's why, that's that's how the selection process worked. And then the mother takes the girls out shopping for dresses. They all get the patterns and materials that they want. And she makes sure that regardless of what they want, she's going to add extra material. So they're all wearing, a, a, what was it called? They're all wearing the same burlap sack yeah. type type of dress. And, you know, there's they're, a little, they're all timid at the beginning. But by the end, at least the girls seem interested in the guys that they're paired with. Whether or not it's genuine or it's just the fact that, you know, they were able to be free with them for a few hours. So well, it's worthwhile. I mean, most of the movie is about Lux. She she is kind of the, the one elevated out of all of them. But the disappointment of the boys that the, the girls feel for the, the boys is evident through all of them. You know, Therese asks the one if he'll call her and he never does. You know, none of the other dates make efforts to see the other girls again regardless. So they all feel that disappointment very acutely Mm -hmm. it's a fascinating contrast to what lux goes through but also they have at least those up and down experiences compared to the boys who are narrating this story that haven't had any of that they're from a a far distance envisioning that they've had this magical experience it's like well these girls at least had some type of interactions at prom or whatever the dance was and you know it may not have been great but at least it was human it was real there was some type of connection for better or worse yeah i i think that it's interesting that 1999 seemed to be the year of kind of the actress because we got this in, in Girl Interrupted is another one where this concept of like trying to identify the quote unquote issues with women when there really aren't any. Um, so I think that 
it's really amazing that both of them came out in the same year. 1999 was an interesting year just in general. I think it's one of my favorite years for cinema just because we had so many diverse films, directors taking risks. I think we had B.M. John Malkovich that year and um, yeah. Magnolia and Three Kings and Matrix. Like there was there was a lot of different types of storytelling, which, I, you know, we look now and it's, I kind of miss that. A lot of, a lot of movies, too, about the nature of the individual and yes. the identity, too, and, and how that's kind of shaped by outside sources that you, you don't want. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, a lot of those directors are still working today yeah. on various various levels but it was it was a great time for film like I forgot this came out as part of 99 like there was so many I think it came out limited 99 most people I think consider it a 2000 film uh, okay but yeah I, I identify it as 99 to me this film still holds up it's a really interesting film well acted it's weird watching James Wood in this and thinking of what James Wood has become now yep. but yep. Yep. you know regardless Regardless of your views outside of the acting world, he, he's he's really good in this. Like as I said, Kathleen Turner, I've loved for years, and even was it Vi Wachowski? I think is still an entertaining film. Like she's just a really interesting actress. And if there's ever a Serial Mom revival, or uh, yes. you know, I'm I will I will be there at the theater if you if you want to play Serial Mom, I will be there because that is a uh, I think it's a hilarious film. Yeah, I I definitely recommend this movie. I recommend Sofia Coppola's entire filmography because. I think she is a genius. Yes, the movies are incredibly white. I know this, but but I love them so much. They are, I think, movies that have shaped both the things I love about cinema and the things I think should be better. But but I I love them. And this was before I got to talk to her. So if somebody says, oh, you just like her movies because you have lunch with her, no, I was a fan beforehand. But but I think this movie is I, her best, her one, her best work. It's it's astounding to me that she has not won an Academy Award. She won for screenplay. I know that, but I'm talking the biggie director or picture. She's been nominated, but but yeah, I I love this movie. I think it's it's a beautiful, subtle exploration of, of female desire and sexuality and male longing and how harmful that can be. And I just I love it. I I've watched this movie way too many times. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Christian, where can folks find you? You can find me making waves on Twitter at uh, journeys underscore film. You can also listen to my other thoughts. Uh, I talk about classic cinema over at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. I also talk about feminism and film weekly on Citizen Dame, at, which is at citizendame.podbean.com. Excellent. And you can reach me at smallwine on Twitter, or you can reach the show at Changing Reels AC on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to rate and review the show. If you, if you listen to us on iTunes, we're also on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, um, wherever you get your podcasts. And if we're not there where you get that, let us know, and we'll try and get up on there. Remember, you can change the conversation on diversity in cinema one real at a time. It's been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.